as uh, Linda talks about the praise team moving around, just remember that, that there's moving parts in a service like this, and sometimes it just takes a moment, and it's all good to have some moving parts. I, uh, I want to thank you for coming back after last week's uh, first start of Ephesians. You didn't disappear on me. I appreciate that. Um, I was asked this week, just so that you know, by another Methodist preacher, uh, he said, I'm looking for a membership class book. Do you have one that you like? And I said, yes, I do. The book of Ephesians. That's the membership class book that I would use. He goes, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, I let the Bible control the class. So when you look for the table of contents in the class, you can just look in the Bible. And so this week we're talking in Ephesians 1, so we'll be talking about what it covers. And then he goes, what a great idea. I said, yeah, at the end of the membership class, they've studied a book of the Bible too, and they know how to do that. So here we go. We're going to go into uh, a little deeper into Ephesians 1 this morning. I want you to know that... Uh, um, one of the main concerns of Ephesians is godliness. That's a, that's a fairly old term. Some, some of our younger believers might not have ever heard that term. So let me define that for you, okay? Godliness is the character of God being built in his people so that they're ready to live in his kingdom. That might not be the definition you had, but that's the definition I'm working from today. So if you have a different definition, I'd be lo- I would just love to hear that. Um, after the service, you can tell me your definition of godliness and why that's a big deal. But this is a big deal to me, that God is building in us his character, a character like him that images him, that is able to represent him so that when we're in his kingdom, we are a true representative of that. Some of you would... Uh, Say, okay, so give me some ways to know how godliness is being built in me. I would say there's four maxims or four guides to godliness. These four things need to happen, not five, four. Okay, the first one is, is we, we begin to need to know who God is. This God who self-reveals, this God who tells us who he is, this God who, who explains himself, as we heard from John 118 this morning, no human has seen God at any time except the Son who is close to him has exegeted, the Greek word there, explained him to us. And what he's done for us. That's the first one. We need to sort of take hold in our brains what that means, who God is, and in our hearts. In other words, that knowledge needs to make this 16 to 18 inch trip from our brains to our heart so that it can encompass every part of us. The second maxim of godliness is that we need to praise. We need to adore God. We need to fall in love with God. We need to just, it needs to well out of our spirit this, this activity of praising God. Those are the first two ways to know that godliness is being built up in you. Godliness is being built. First, you take hold of the knowledge. That's a body activity. Then you adore and you praise God. That's a spirit activity as your body and your spirit work together. We just did a song that was a a study in doxology. You might not know that as the doxology because that's the title of a song, but doxology means glory or the study of glory. 
And that's what that song we just did was, a study in his glory. There are two other maxims, and we'll get to those later as we go through Ephesians, but I don't want to confuse the issue too much. And I could lose myself in this issue of body and spirit working together, but I need to keep on the fact of God's self-revelation this morning. So let's uh, go to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Um, But before I read, I just wanted to say this to you. Because I said this in the first one, and I know my wife does grammar. Who here does grammar and understands the rules of the English language? <laughs> okay, I got, I got six of us. <laughs> and, so, and some reluctant hands going up over here as their neighbors help them. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is something you need to know as you read this. In the original language, these 11 verses are one sentence. This is one sentence in the Greek. And, and being one sentence, what does that mean for the main verb and the main noun that they control the rest of the sentence? Isn't that right? For those of you who do grammar, I, I just take this for granted. People tell me that this is what grammar does. That's why I'm married to an English teacher so that I don't have to know this. But, but if you have one main noun and one main verb, let me give you them in this verse, okay? Here we are. All praise to God. That's the main noun and the main verb of this entire sentence. God, God is the noun. Praise is the verb. So here we go. All praise to God. Everything else modifies this. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us to be in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is also so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us with his kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan, that at the right time he will bring bring everything together under the authority of Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did so, did this all so we would praise and glorify him. That is one sentence. Now you might say to yourself, boy, that's a mouthful of a sentence, isn't it? Except... All praise to God. 
and everything else modifies it. So who is this God the Father? Some of you might know him a little bit. I'm talking about a Trinitarian faith here because all three elements of the Trinity are in view in this piece of Scripture. All of them in one place. It is so rare in Scripture that they're so visibly named. But I want you to know that most of us don't know this God the Father very well, and we think that that it's only the Old Testament God that looks so angry that is God the Father. I want you to know that, that it took a lot of work for him to interact in the old world just as it does ours because there's so much stuff going on that makes everything look bad both then and now that God continues to work and pour out his blessing on us. So let me introduce you to this father, if you will. Before there was an Adam, before there were Adams, A-T-O-M-S, you were a twinkle in his eye. Before anything, he decided to make you his and to adopt you into his family. Today, Ted sang a song about adoption. They've announced that they're in the three-month countdown for their new child, for their ne- next son, and their adoption, that they'd be gathered. That they, God did the same thing. He would gather us in advance. The, the plan was made, and God is gathering us in advance into his family. Now, one of the tricks here to understand is that before there were Adams, God chose to do this, does not mean in any way that you earned it because you weren't anything yet. I just want you to understand that, that you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, that God decided to just pour this blessing out. And by the way, this was his plan, it says in the scripture, and it made him happy to do it. That's the twinkle in the eye text, if you will. All this he did because he wanted to do it. This is God for us. God is for us. Have you experienced this God who's for you, who's on your side, who's doing things in advance to make you able, who's who's moving in your life and putting things in motion to bless you, to pour out of his wealth, to continue to do it? Do you know what it means to be wealthy or to have somebody wealthy lavish things upon you? An example that came to mind for me is uh, one of the Bill Gates foundations. You know, what a foundation is, they have to sell, spend a certain percentage of their money every year or they lose their foundation status. But, God, but Bill Gates's foundation is growing because the, because the interest keeps building on it faster than they can spend it, and so he can't spend it fast enough. That's the image I want you to think of as God pouring out his blessings. He just can't pour them out fast enough. They just keep building. He's wealthier than... Bill Gates is not wealthy, by the way. We think of him as wealthy in human things. I want you to understand this other thing. Do you know that when Henry Ford was going at top speed, that 13 cents out of every dollar in the gross national product went through his pocket? 13% of the gross national product was Henry Ford's. And we think Bill Gates is rich. No, Henry Ford wasn't rich. Henry Ford had stuff. Rich is what God is, who owns everything and continues to pour out on us. Have you met this God who is for you? Who makes everything work in your life? Who, by the way, if you think, and I've said this before, if you begin to think that you're on your own and that he's not pouring out his blessings on you, stop breathing his air. 
It's his air. It's his water. It's his earth. This is a wonderful place. It is a place of blessing to us. And it's so much better than not having an earth to be on. This is God for us. Now, in case you think that that might be the totality of this revelation of God for us, God didn't think it was enough to just be this, but he wanted to explain himself to us. And how did he do that? He sent his son at just the right time, as the prophets would say, or as John would say, that he has tabernacled amongst us. He came and he lived amongst us. This is the Lord God whom we have touched, whom we have known. And John, John the apostle might say, who I leaned against at supper. This is Jesus who said, I am the very image of the invisible God. Paul would do that again. Uh, if you, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul in Colossians says, I'm the very image of the invisible God. Sorry. So I get my, my scriptures confused in my head and they all run together. <laughs> it's not the worst thing in the world that can happen to me. But here's this Jesus. This is God with us. It's not enough for God to just be for us, to be on our side. He decided that he would come and be with us that he would be down here on earth and be like us. And, and then, not only that, he, he took our cares upon himself. The scriptures, the, the gospels are full of him healing and touching and taking care of people's needs and looking after their understanding of God in a really profound way. It's really important that we not adjust who God is to the things that we think he ought to be, that we ought to take him as he reveals himself. Do you know why we shouldn't adjust who we think God is according to our desires? I know, I know seminary students that say, well, I don't like sacrifice, and so we don't do the substitutionary atonement very well. That, I just don't like it. Well, what makes that seminary student think that God asked their opinion? It's God's salvation for us. It it is our salvation, but it is God's first. That he provided it out of the wealth of him and he pours it out on us. That as we self-identify, as we start to produce, that God starts to produce godliness in us and he starts to change our character and everything, that we begin to know this Jesus who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God with us that at just the right time we would get our salvation. But here's, stop, he's not done. How many of you have thought that this is an amazing salvation thing that God's done for me, but that's just not possible for me to live the life he's asking me to live? I can't do it, I'm not able. Is there anybody in the room that that thought has ever crossed their mind? Okay, it's true, you're not. Except God. That when you identify and as you're marked out by Jesus Christ as his own, you're not left with just God advocating for you and taking care of you. And you're not left with God just walking beside you. You get the Holy Spirit inside of you as a guarantee on the inheritance that's been promised. Now, if the Holy Spirit's in you and and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do all that, then what does the guarantee do? You know what guarantees do. 
right? If you, it used to be at Sears, if you buy a tool and you broke it, what did you get? You, a new tool. It was a guarantee. You couldn't mess it up enough for them to not replace it. Now, it had to be identifiable as a craftsman, right? But that's what you do with Jesus is he identifies you as his. And in case you think that you could be so messed up that he couldn't recognize you, think again. He knows who are his. He hasn't forgotten you, and he won't leave you alone. Nothing, no, nothing can snatch you out of his hand because not only are you in his hand and he's beside you, he's in you. God in us, the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian faith. This is just like the red Kool-Aid poured into a pitcher, right? Once you pour the the Kool-Aid in, you go ahead and drink all you want, but don't take the red. No, if you're reading the Bible, you're getting Trinitarian thought all over the place because God is for us and God is with us and God is in us. And God in us is the coolest thing ever because it takes us, these lumps of clay, these these people that can't possibly do it and can't possibly earn it and don't deserve it, and it makes it possible. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. Even if you don't see it happening, it's happening. And you might ask yourself, well, what can the Holy Spirit Spirit do with me? Why don't you ask him? Do anything you're willing to let him do. This is the production of godliness in us, the character of God developed and created in us that we might be outposts for him wherever we go, that we might be the invasion of the future into our present. Let me unfold that just a second for you. If your future is the kingdom of God to live with him forever, to be part of his kingdom, and you're part of Jesus's and his godliness is being developed in you, your future is starting to invade your present. Isn't it? Are you starting to become more and more like Jesus? Then your future is a coming. The deposit's been made in your life. The guarantee is the Holy Spirit who keeps you from being snatched out out of his hand. Now, what were those first two maxims of godliness that I said, are you ready again? That you might take hold, that you might understand who God is and what he's done for you. And that that, and that, that knowledge wouldn't just get st- stuck up here, it would move all the way down into your heart. And by that I mean, once it's in your heart, is there anything in your heart that doesn't get to your fingertips sooner or later? Because that's how your blood works, right? It goes right through there. So that this knowledge begins to work in your heart and it changes your heart, but it changes your fingers and what you do with your fingers too. What you do with your toes and your hands and where you walk and how you do it. This is the first thing about God producing godliness in us. The character of the kingdom of of God, the people of God changed into, into this outpost for him. And the second one is that out of that knowledge and out of your spirit comes this deep welling forth of praise for God. 
that you would adore him. Adoration, big, huge, ancient word, right? We don't use that word anymore. How many of you have said, I just need to go do some adoration today? No, but you do. But you do need to do some adoration today. Have you praised him? Have you said thank you to God for the things going on in your life, for for the change he's made, for the things going on around you, for the healing going on, for every little thing? That that if we live and breathe in this this manner where, where praise and the knowledge of who God is is this deep wellspring that just sort of flows out of us and into us, You can't help but be changed. By the way, being changed is the fourth maxim of godliness. Some people would say that most Christians would rather die than be changed. But if you're going to be godly and you're going to have God's character in your life, then you have to be willing to be changed because he's calling you to be different than you once were. And you might say, well, I changed once, and I kind of liked it, but I'm done now. This is a life journey. One of the things that I was talking about with Amelie and Sophie in their baptism is as long as you think you've made it, you're, you're not going anywhere. But you need to know that all Christians continually must be called to change. All of us. Because God's not done with you yet. You, do I need to say more? Is God done with you? Are you the way you want to be? Wow. Some of you are all, they're smiling, going, yeah, me, I'm ready. <laughs> no, you're not the way you're supposed to be yet. You're getting there. You might be better than you ever thought you were going to be, but you're not done yet. And the fourth maxim of godliness is that sometime in your life, you will have to take a stand for him. Now, what's that mean? That doesn't mean that you're out there on a soapbox pointing the bony finger of indignation at people. Sometimes you're going to have to do something really amazing like love somebody that didn't seem lovable 35 seconds earlier. Sometime you're going to have to stop and talk to somebody and it's going to turn to God and you're going to have to say, yes, I know this God. He has changed me. I don't get it. I just know him and he's changed me. Would you like to meet him? Let me introduce you. That's, you know, that's what witnessing is. And you have a story and your story is this, that God's done stuff in your life and you need to talk about it. And you might say it wrong, but it's all good. Because you've done, God's done stuff in your life, and you'll do better next time. And then he's invited you into this conversation with yourself and with others about what he's done. That this is how godliness is developed. But before we get to those other things, to the ethical things like being changed and, and, and taking a stand, let's do this. Let's take hold of how God shows himself to us. This God that's for us, the God that's with us, and a God that's in us. And let's praise him. Because that's the theme of this entire piece of scripture. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, I thank you for the ability to take a deep breath, to be alive in you, to be alive as maybe I've never been before. I thank you for the way you're doing that for each and every one of them out here, for every one of us, for me, for them, for us, for those you've done that for and for those you will do that for. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.